part of what they made their brand, at least on the first album, is they introduced falsettos, which, again, as we discussed earlier, gives them that kind of slacker feel where they're not afraid to be self-deprecating and to sing like, and that's for all time. Welcome to the Echospire Song Destruct podcast, where we reverse engineer the most influential songs in history. This is a tightly formatted show where we dive into the mechanics of songwriting and production, deconstructing chord structure, song architecture, production design, and arrangements. We rate and review the effectiveness of these song elements and evaluate what we can learn from them so that we can become better songwriters and designers. Today's episode is titled Every Day by Buddy Holly versus Buddy Holly by Weezer. And the theme of this episode is time hacking. And let me just kind of give everybody a quick agenda on what we intend to cover with time hacking. We're going to be discussing halftime versus double time. Straight time versus swing time, six eight time versus triplet four four, and uh, there's going to be a few other goodies in there as well. But uh, we're going to get downright mathematical in this episode. Quant's going to make my head hurt. It might make your head hurt. It might make Ryan's head hurt too. What do you have to say about doing math in terms of music, Ryan? It sounds like school. It's kind of like when you approach lyrics as if they're poetry, when you're counting the whatever pentameter and iambic and these other words that I don't know what they mean. Uh, it always bores me. <laughs> okay. Well, but at the same time, I think I blew your mind in the John Lennon versus Paul McCartney episode where you began to understand how much insightful math there is, at least in counting the bars and it helped shed insight into how thrifty the Beatles were. Well, I, I've, I've always appreciated the random two, four bar or three, four bar. What about the extra measure? Sure. As soon as you change the denominator in the uh, time signature, time signature. As soon as you change the denominator, I'm out. <laughs> Don't need it. I need a four down there. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm going to go ahead and tell the listeners I'm not incredibly concerned with the technicalities. I'm really only interested in time signature as it actually impacts what the song feels like. That means I'd, I'm not going to be changing the denominator. As far as I'm concerned, everything has a four in the bass, whether it's 3-4 timing, 5-4 timing, whether it's double time or half time. Everything can be talked about keeping a 4 in the denominator. Otherwise, it's all relative. If you change that to an 8 or change it to a 16, you haven't really done anything other than to just change how you're counting the quarter notes or the eighth notes. It's needlessly complicated. So I'm going to get into some of that structure and it took me some time. I did not know this before I did this episode. I, I kind of intuitively knew it, but I had to put word and structure around it so that I can bring to this episode some kind of new insights. But we're going to get to that in the second half of this episode. For now, let's just talk about Buddy Holly, uh, also known as Charles Hardin. That's his real name. He was not born Buddy Holly. He wrote with Norman Petty, his producer, or at least he gets credit every day. And it was actually the B-side to the actual single that was put out, which was Peggy Sue. Now, real quick, let me just do some swing versus straight time analysis. So straight time, Peggy Sue, as far as I can tell, is the first song to be done in straight time, 
which is just to say it's done in downbeats or down strumming on a guitar. Pretty, 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 baggy Sue. There's no swing to it. Like, since my baby left it, I found a new place to dwell. That's, that's swing time. In any case, I want to quickly make that distinction. But going back to the point that Peggy Sue was the single every day was the B-side. It was never released. Didn't know that. Just to give you a little bit more context here, Buddy Holly's career only lasted a year and a half. He got famous towards the beginning of 1957 with his first hit, That'll Be the Day, which uh, did go to number one. That'll be the day when I die. So that was his first number one, and he died a year and a half later, February 3rd, 1959. Wow. He also died with Richie Valens, famous for La Bamba. He was only 17 years old, Richie Valens. Richie Valens was only famous for six months before he died. He got famous in the summer of 1958. Well, this might be then a good trivia wonderment. Uh, Who would be the most famous person that was famous for the least amount of time? I'm going to say forget Valens for a minute because I think Buddy Holly is way more famous because of the image and the black rim glasses and everyone knows who Buddy Holly is. Um, Wow. If he was like, a year and a half, and he's as famous as he is. It seems like we wouldn't even know his name. Well, and there's a third one tied with him, Big Bopper, same as Richie Valens, where he got famous in the six months before he died. He was 28. Richie Valens was 17. Buddy Holly was 22. Hmm. So they were very young, and it really does, th- this whole, you know, the day the music died, uh, Don McLean references in his song. It's a big, pivotal event, because if you look at how rock and roll evolved, comes out in about 55. You could argue 54 because Elvis released uh, That's All Right, Mama in 54, but really it kind of spread its wings in 1955. It was only around for three years before Elvis was drafted in 1958. Buddy Holly died along with Richie Valens and Big Bopper in 1959. And I will say once Elvis comes back in 1960, rock and roll has changed. It's gone from kind of the rockabilly doo-wop era into being more of a composer rock. That's where Burt Bacharach gets in. That goes back to our last episode where you start to see the evolution of the chorus. It's less teen pop, and it's a little bit more composition pop by 1960. And of course, by 1963, and besides the Beatles coming to uh, America's shore, you get JFK getting popped in the head with a bullet. Whoa, that's one way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I put it that way because honestly, we do not give enough credit to what kind of impact that had on the psychosis of the world to see somebody killed in real time. And not just somebody, but one of probably the most likable. I don't particularly like JFK, but I'll admit he was likable. The fact that it was even on film is because of the Zabruder film. Yep, home video. Think about how rare that was back in the day. I mean, the fact that that was caught on film at all, that was not in the plans for whoever planned that killing. You know, if you want to believe that it wasn't just the single gunman theory, they did not expect it to have video proof that, that their theory was bunk. Right. It's not like they were showing the Zabruder film and that didn't come out for years. I don't think anybody had footage of him. No, actually, that that's the weird thing is that they did, just by happenstance, find out uh, a media outlet found out about it. And I believe they had that video. Like on the news? On the news by that night, I believe. So they wouldn't show the actual gunshot, but they would show him like turning the corner in the in the car? Something to that effect. People knew that the video existed by the end of that day. Oh, wow. Okay. I think they opted for taking screenshots of it or at that time photographs. But besides the JFK 
issue. And I'm just getting to the heart of what characterizes rock, because I think rock is a pretty dark music today. It's been so for a long time. And I think it's- Sorry to interrupt. Did you, this is related. Did you listen to the new Dylan song? My son told me about it. It's like a 17 minute song about JFK. (laughs) Yeah. And so he hasn't had a song in, I don't know, seven or eight years. The last album was The Tempest. One of the songs on The Tempest is a 13 or 14 minute song about the sinking of the Titanic. Amazing song. And I think the only reason he made the JFK song 17 minutes is just to make it longer than his Titanic song. (laughs) He had to outdo himself. Which, you know, of course, Dylan was right in in the middle of it all because he came out really in like 62, started to get really big probably in 64. You get the Vietnam draft starting in 64. Now, there had been a peacetime draft in Korea leading up to this, but the Vietnam draft was seen as a different animal. One, because it it showed that the peacetime draft in Korea was not going away anytime soon. But two, the Vietnam draft ramped up how many people were actually being drafted. And plus, you had the whole generation of baby boomers. We were talking about earlier in this call how COVID is particularly affecting the economy because the baby boomers are a heavy part of our population. Yeah. They they want to be protected from the COVID. So basically the entire economy is being shut down to protect the baby boomers. Well, right. in the early 60s, the baby boomers were, you know, all turning 13 and 14 and 15. But I think that that's what directly influenced music getting dark because music was being written for 13-year-olds in the 60s. If you were to ask a record producer, who do you produce music for? It would be for 13-year-olds. That's a little bit of history into Elvis gets drafted, Buddy Holly dies uh, 59, JFK dies 63, Vietnam draft 64. Is it any wonder that by 1965, you have songs like We're on the Eve of Destruction coming out? Ultimately, what I want to contrast Every Day by Buddy Holly with is Buddy Holly by Weezer. Now, if you fast forward to 1994, 30 years in the future, Buddy Holly, the song, I think it's referencing much of what I'm discussing. Despite the fact that the video is happy-go-lucky, the lyrics are very much high contrast. I'll just quickly jump into it. What's with these homies dissing my girl? Why do they got a front? What did we ever do to these guys that made them so violent? They're describing a situation where... There's some kind of altercation happening. Now, again, they do it in a mocking, comedic way. In the chorus, he jumps into, look at me, I look just like Buddy Holly. You're Mary Tyler Moore, and I don't care what they say about us. I don't care about that. So it's a happy-go-lucky, rugged, individualistic, 1950s Americana type of vibe. Back into the second verse, don't you ever fear. I'm always near. I know that you need help. Your tongue is twisted. Your eyes are slit. You need a guardian. The verses are fairly dark. And of course, the middle eight is bang, bang, a knock on the door, another big bang, and you're down on the floor. Oh, no, what do we do? Don't look now, but I lost my shoe. I can't run and I can't kick. What's the matter, babe? You feeling sick? What's the matter? What's the matter? What's the matter, you? What's the matter, babe? Are you feeling blue? Obviously, all of this can be played for comedic effect, but I do believe that Rivers Kumo, who's one of my top 20 songwriters of all time. Kumo? What did I say? You said Rivers Kumo. Uh, (laughs) Cuomo. (laughs) Well, Rivers, I believe, knows exactly what he's doing. And if I get a chance during this episode, I'm going to go through each of their songs and show you what he invented that had not been done before or at least a lot of the themes that are present on the Blue album, their initial album, and why he's a genius. Well, don't you think that he does have a tongue-in-cheek, humorous, that's mainly the backdrop? Well, there's a slacker ethic. Like, if you look at them on the cover of the Blue Album, yeah, slacker was a big... The movie slacker? Yeah, the movie slacker, but also just the term slacker. You think of Beck, I'm a loser. Yeah. Why, why don't you kill me? 
So a lot of that 1993 ethos came into this album, which came out in 1994, the ethos of, hey, I'm a slacker, or at least I appear to be a slacker, but there's more than meets the eye. Well, that, yeah, then I'll, I'll say there's a slacker bravado of yeah. a gang mentality, too, of uh, this is our little crew over here. You're going to step to us? Why they got a front? All that stuff. I mean, I've always found it funny. So I, I, Yeah, yeah, it's funny. But let's get inside of his head for a second. Why does he go into the chorus saying, ooh, ooh, I look just like Buddy Holly? Obviously, he does look a little bit like Buddy Holly, but what is that? have to do with the verse why does he contrast an altercation with a 1950s pop icon i've got a theory what that was the lyric that came out of his mouth <laughs> great theory great theory <laughs> let me suggest this the phrasing in the chorus ooh, wee, ooh i look just like buddy holly that's the same phrasing as every day. It's a getting faster with the same chords. Ooh. Now, whether he did it intentionally or whether he just thought, you know what? It just works. I'm singing about Buddy Holly. I don't know why, but it works. I think he was subconsciously understanding that he was singing the every day. It's a getting faster melody. You know what's kind of brilliant about Rivers? He's a straight up metalhead. And the fact that he even thought to say Buddy Holly or do that if the phrasing theory is correct or whatever, but that's pretty cool. That just means he's more musically gifted in different genres than most people. Well, don't give him too much credit. Okay. <laughs> Nirvana's in Bloom video, which came out in 1992. If you recall, yeah. that's like an Ed Sullivan lookalike. Sure. Yeah. So Nirvana, we all know Kurt Cobain, we love the Beatles. So he was quite aware of how, despite it appearing to be grunge rock, it really was just pop rock from the early 60s. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but great video. Buddy Holly, as I mentioned, it's the B-side to Peggy Sue. Peggy Sue goes to number three. So that'll be the day was a number one. Peggy Sue was only a number three. Every day, despite the fact that it was never released as a single, is voted as Rolling Stone's 238th best song ever. It did not go gold. James Taylor and John Denver did cover it, and theirs did chart. John Denver did one in 1981. James Taylor did his in 1985. That'll be the day did go gold just to provide some context. So Buddy Holly was making some bank before he died. He had moved to Manhattan right next to Washington Square Park, one block north of there. Him and his wife were living there. After he died, he had some demos and his wife gave them to the record company. And some of the songs that were released after he died were those. And they basically added some barbershop quartet behind him. You know, the song crying, waiting, hoping you come back. Da, 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 da. That came out after he died, and it was just a little one-track demo that they added drums to after he died. By the way, his record company released songs up until 1969 for the next 10 years because of the demo tapes. They could continue to kind of rework them and add new versions and everything else. Mm. Buddy Holly's music career actually lasted from 1957 to 1969, even though he died in 1959. Now, of course, Don McLean comes out with American Pie in 1971. This is the first time in music history, rock history, where it cycles because Don McLean started realizing, wait a second, we've kind of lost the initial thread here. Because I've mentioned in the past in our Footloose episode where I was kind of wondering when did the movie soundtracks for music get started? And I had taken it back to Eddie and the Cruisers, which was like 1982, but it actually got started with Greece in 1978. 
which was, again, hearkening back to the 50s. And then the Buddy Holly story it came out in 1979. My point here is anytime you analyze rock history, you'll always notice it's cycling. So it's first cycle in 71 with Don McLean's American Pie. Then American Graffiti came out, which was actually 73. Happy Days came out, the TV show in 1974. And then by 1978, it had a cycle again with movie soundtracks referencing 50s era. And that takes you through Footloose and takes you all the way through like uh, the late 80s. I will always talk about what's upstream and downstream from any particular event so that you can kind of understand the context. And it's just interesting to see that we've had a good three, four uh, cycles in rock music over the past 50, 60 years that it's been around. One other big thing I want to mention just in the introduction of Buddy Holly is that he invented the four-man band. So before him, you know, Bill Haley in the Comets, he had, uh, you know, a troop of guys around him. Elvis, one-man band. Other teenage pop stars, one-man bands. Buddy Holly was the quintessential singer-guitarist with a bass player, with a drummer, and rhythm guitarist. Weezer, of course, is way downstream from that, but it's worth noting that Beatles are directly downstream from Buddy Holly and the Crickets. They named their band to sound like the Crickets, Beatles Crickets. Right. Let's introduce Buddy Holly by Weezer. Rivers Cuomo wrote it. Uh, the album came out in 1994. I would say it's one of the best albums ever. Top 20. I might even put it in the top 10, maybe. I would have to do a thorough analysis, but definitely top 20 for me. I couldn't give Beatles more than one album Otherwise, they would take up like the top 10. <laughs> oh, I always do that. I always say, do you want to hear my top 10 albums of all time included with Beatles or without? Because that's going to be at least seven of them. Well, I think that history or pop culture regards them actually as a novelty act. They basically had Undone the Sweater song, which was kind of just a, a goofy song. They had Buddy Holly, which was kind of seen as a goofy video. And then they had Beverly Hills, which was seen as a novelty song. But the point is, is that I think every time they chart, it's just a novelty song. Therefore, they're regarded as a novelty act, much like Wright Said Fred or any one hit wonder you can think about. Yet, I don't think anyone gives them credit that they have one of the top albums of all time. And it could be objectively argued that it's one of the best, not just my personal preference or taste. I could bring out math and get technical <laughs> on why it is. Here's a problem you might run into. There's people like me out there. Hate those guys. I know. They're everywhere. <laughs> I can't live with myself. And what we do is we like Pinkerton. We put Pinkerton above the Blue Album. No qualms with the fact that by the numbers, it's a more successful album, the Blue Album. If you're going to hear some song covering a Weezer song, those are the ones you're going to hear, Buddy Holly. There's two calculators. I like Pinkerton better than the Blue Album. Okay. How do I reconcile that? Well, I'm saying that the Blue Album is technically better but I have a personal preference for Pinkerton. Now, what's the difference? There's objective versus personal preference. Pinkerton, it just sounds more DIY, and I kind of like that sound. Mm -hmm. But I, I can also distance myself from that and say, well, that doesn't make sense for me to impose that as an objective standard. The objective standard should be what sounds better. Well, the Blue Album sounds better. It's just that Pinkerton sounds more like something I like. So again, I just say it's personal versus objective. Objectively, the Blue Album is the better album, not just because of the math, the numbers, but because of the songwriting. You know who would probably agree with you? Who? I bet Rivers would agree with you. Yeah, I think he's living in the shadow of the Blue Album his entire life. And I think he's pretty down on Pinkerton for some reason too personal or something. Despite when 
when an artist makes it big, that's not when they make their money. They make their money after they gain leverage in the relationship with the record company and they make it on the subsequent album, sometimes the third or fourth album. So if they can't keep their audience to the third or fourth album, they end up losing a lot of money. Sure, they still make a million, but they could have made 20 million or 200 million. Oh, yeah. And he knows that Pinkerton kind of sold his career down the toilet, despite the fact that it's a monumental achievement artistically, it did not do what it was designed to do, which was to keep the momentum. But then he got it right back with the Green Elm. He also had to sell his soul. To, to write the Green Elm? Well, there's some good songs on there. There are, but Pinkerton was what he wanted to write. Yeah. That was the direction he wanted to go in. So in any case, 1994, this album goes gold. It ended up going platinum one year later, and it went three times platinum in 1998. So the Blue Album continued to sell for three or four years. It was still selling even when Pinkerton was not, because Pinkerton came out in 1996. Pinkerton eventually did go gold in 2001, and it went platinum in 2016. It took five years to go gold. So that's the introduction we've, we've covered every day by Buddy Holly and Buddy Holly by Weezer. Let's get into some of the architecture going back to Every Day by Buddy Holly. We're going to start talking about time. This song has no backbeat. And anytime you go to measure tempo, you're basically looking to find when does the snare hit? One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four as the backbeat, or is it measuring one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. That determines ultimately what the tempo is, where you're counting the backbeat. For the purpose of this discussion, I'm always going to count it on the second and fourth beat. That way we don't have to worry about whether it's eighth notes or this is what keeps a four in the denominator. Okay. Every day they they do some time signature hacking because there is no backbeat. So, oh my gosh, we're now in a completely ambiguous situation. I'm going to say it's a slow tempo because it feels like a slow song. It makes those knee percussion notes 16th notes. Now, if you were to say it's a faster tempo, then it would make those eighth notes. The reason why I think it's important to put this into a time signature with a slow tempo so that the notes are 16th notes is because I think that those thigh slappings are supposed to sound like ticking seconds and they're supposed to sound rapid. So again, I'm just talking about the psychology that has been imposed onto the song by either Holly or the producer. It is intended because the song is talking about a day, moments living in time every day it's getting closer going faster than a roller coaster love like yours will surely come my way every day it's getting faster everyone says go out and ask her love like yours will surely come my way so it's putting it into the context of love by the bridge every day seems a little longer every way love's a little stronger come what may do you ever long for true love from me did you notice that every day is one word yeah yeah instead of being two words it's incorrect <laughs> i thought so i don't think it was intended i think they just messed up even though the song is about a love story it is referencing time. So this is one of the most intelligent productions in rock and roll history at this point. It's kind of got this hopeful, chance, opportunistic message, which again, I think comes out of the Eisenhower 1950s era, and I think was prevalent across America until Buddy Holly died. And to see him die and kids have to witness the death of someone they'd come to know in an era when mass media was still a brand new thing, that I think was bigger than JFK's death. Hmm. We'll let it slide. As a quick lesson to a songwriter, try a downbeat instead of a backbeat. So when you make it a downbeat instead of a backbeat, it slows it down. Essentially, what you're doing is you're taking it out of a double time and making it a half time. So the tempo changes when you do double time versus half time. And when you do down notes, you're changing the tempo to 70 beats per minute. 
when you do double time, that makes it 140 beats a minute. Despite the fact that the beat's the same, right? when you add the backbeat, it makes the music feel like it's moving faster. Well, walk me through this, because this is where I get hazy with time signatures. But like to me, the, the tempo seems to be every beat. Oh, yeah. Uh, then there's something. That's the speed it's going. A two, three, four. Five. Where are you putting the backbeat? That's my question. When you make it a downbeat, you half time it. So that there is no backbeat, it's just a bass beat with no upbeat. It makes it feel slower. <laughs> so that's the hack. Imagine this. Every day, it's a getting faster, going faster than... Example A. Right. That's example A, which is backbeat two and four. Right. But they do it in a downbeat. It's a getting faster, going faster. That feels slower. It, it's like, it's like it's, you know what it is? It's like a rubber band effect. It seems to snap right. your attention... Well, it's an upbeat. Let's call it up so that distinguish between the downbeat and an upbeat. Buddy Holly does not have any upbeat in every day. The second you add an upbeat, which is the same thing as doing double time, the second you add the backbeat, it feels faster hmm. because you're getting the snap. <clears throat> the, the chords are fairly simple. It's just uh, your one, four, five pattern. It's in the key of D. So let me talk about that because the bridge, I'll present the chords in the key of D. So it's going D, G, A. By the time it gets to the bridge, they do a key change. This might be one of the first key changes in rock and roll history. When he comes out of the root note of D, he goes, every day seems a little longer. He hits G. Now, G is just going to the four. That's not a key change. However, using the rule of fifths, he then goes to C. Now, that is still sort of, as we discussed, that's kind of that seventh. It's still kind of sort of in the key. But it's definitely going outside of the key because then he uses the circle of fists to hit F. And then he goes up to B flat before tailing back into A, which is taking it back into the appropriate key signature of D, which is using the fifth. As you said in a previous episode, whenever you want to get back to the key left, you kind of have to figure out a way to make your way up to the five chord. And in this case, he transitions basically to the key of F. That's right. But again, this is one of the first times in rock and roll history also, I think when people listen to the song, they probably don't think it's doing anything particularly clever. I think it's smart. <laughs> it's, it's smart, especially since in order to make it back to the fifth, to make it back to A, he's got to slide down a semitone. He's got to plane down from B flat to A, and that is particularly smart. Right. And just as a quick aside, that circle of fifths that he's using, that's been used subsequently in songs like Killing Me Softly. Roberta Flack, or at least the singer is Roberta Flack. It's also been used in I Will Survive, Gloria Gaynor. So those song structures utilize that circle of fists to a greater extent, like the entire song is built on it. But I think the first time I've seen it used is with Every Day by Buddy Holly. One other thing architecturally that I find kind of cool is that Buddy Holly goes out of his way to not rhyme. So it's every day it's getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. That rhymes. The first and the second line rhyme. The third leg of that verse does not. Love like yours will surely come my way. Now he does go to his hey, 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 to, to get some kind of a rhyme in there. But at the end of the bridge, he does not bother with the cutesy rhyme. Every day seems a little longer. Every way loves a little stronger. Come what may, do you ever long for? true love from me. So why doesn't he rhyme? Well, anytime you don't rhyme, you're essentially telling the listener, I'm being sincere. And it has this trick on the psyche, which is, look, I didn't go out of my way to find a word that would rhyme because the word, the actual word was more important 
than finding the rhyming word. It's a good it's a good trick, I guess, if it, if you're trying to promote sincerity. Uh, this was recorded in Clovis, New Mexico, which is just I find kind of interesting because during this era, most recording studios are either New York, yeah. or L.A. Who would have thought New Mexico? Yeah, or maybe Nashville. So some of the choices they made were to make a particularly dry vocal and to make an honest vocal. And Buddy Holly, just not even just this song, but his other songs, even Peggy Sue, he sings in a whispery voice. And it's very effective, and it's his sound. The story of Buddy Holly's career, even though he got famous in 57, he was around in 56, and he was making recordings that never took off. If you go back and listen to them, it doesn't sound anything like Buddy Holly. And the big difference is, is that they're recorded just like any other recording you've ever heard. He's not singing whispery. It's not a dry vocal. There's a lot of reverb. When he left that recording contract, he chose this studio with Norman. It was Norman Petty's own studio. He chose to work with him so that he could have control over the production. So Buddy Holly knew what would work best for him. And he made the song sound iconic like they do. I'll give Buddy Holly a lot of the credit, but I'm sure Norman was working with him. Some of the other choices that they made on this song were uh, use of a xylophone, which, by the way, he did not invent in pop music because uh, songs like Mr. Sandman, Mr. Sandman, bring us a dream. That's like 54, and they were using xylophone there. It is interesting to note these things because we are in the early days of rock and roll. We're literally every day, pun intended, mm-hmm. every day there was a new sound, a new parlor trick, a new way of approaching pop music to sort of unfold the patterns. And as I've mentioned in the last episode, I think it all culminated in 63 with the chorus being really fully evolved. After that, everything is repeating. You have major to minor, you have minor to major. Everything's been done by 64. One other thing to keep in mind with this song, Every Day by Buddy Holly, I would put it into a category of song, which I would labeled novelty, like I was referring to with Buddy Holly earlier, although this would be novelty songs from the 50s, they probably wouldn't go into the same category as novelty songs from the 90s. They all belong to a novelty song group of which would be songs like Lollipop, 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 oh, Lollipop, <laughs> mm-hmm. or even Big Bopper's uh, Chantilly Lace had a pretty face. And a, all, all this kind of music that almost sounds like designed purposefully for the radio, heavily themed music. And I think that every day kind of qualifies, which is a good thing. It shows the listener that there's more thought being put into it than every single Nirvana song sounds fairly the same. They do try different production choices, but it's it's a lot more subtle. For the most part, Nirvana songs are all painted with the same brush. Novelty songs try to stand out and sound quite different by using instruments like xylophone. Like They didn't have to use a xylophone on this song. They didn't have to use downbeats. They could have played this in a straightforward backbeat rhythm, but Buddy Holly chose the novelty song format. Uh, I've alluded to Sleepwalk many times in the past. Sleepwalk is that instrumental song. That song came out in 1959. Now, I've oftentimes cited that as being one of the darkest songs in pop history. And that song came out after Buddy Holly died. I do believe that Sleepwalk was immediately downstream from Buddy Holly's death. Now, if you read the background on Sleepwalk, it was written apparently a year and a half before. It just took him a year and a half to actually get it to radio. However, I think that the production choices to make it sound creepy were uh, chosen because of the aftermath of Buddy Holly's death, which again, I will say ultimately influences the song Buddy Holly by Weezer. Let's talk about its architecture. 
So it's comedic. It's kind of romanticizing this relationship. Just that kind of 50s-esque nature of saying, hey, you and me forever, babe. Uh, so it's got all that going on. It's the theme of 50s music. They obviously really brought it to life with the music video. It's the idea of shunning conformity. Like, hey, we don't care what anyone says about us. We don't care about that. That's that's ultimately the identity that was also reforming in 1994, which I subscribe to and I still do, which is be a nonconformist. <laughs> that's what came out of the 50s culture. It was rugged individualism. You know, in the 60s, it kind of took on this almost communistic flavor collective, which I'm still not a fan of. In any case, I think that that's part of what Weezer was trying to channel with this particular song. And also just anti-establishmentism is, is also in line with rugged individualism. Let's talk about the chords. The chords are just F sharp, and then it kind of transitions up to A, uh, stepping up through a G sharp. Pre-chorus is D, C sharp minor, F sharp minor. And then, of course, for the little transition, that's for all, all time. It's D, D minor. D minor yeah. So they're using the major to minor, which, again, comes out of uh, early pop history. Chorus is just the one, four, five pattern, A, D, E, with a little F sharp thrown in there. Keep in mind, Weezer uses a middle eight in this song. 50% of the songs on the Weezer Blue album have a middle eight. 40% of them have a pre-chorus. 50% of them have a falsetto voice. And 80% of them have downstrokes. Now, the reason why I bring up the downstrokes is because Rivers Cuomo, I recently learned, in the midst of recording this album, made a, a judgment call when he was doing his guitar overdubs that they should only do downstrokes. That means no rhythm playing. In other words, no up and down playing. I do think it creates a big theme in the album because everything does sound particularly downstroke driven, which... Just a quick aside, the Strokes made that their brand. I wonder how Weezer got signed. It just seems like a, even if they were like, all right, well, it's going to be this downstrokes, humorous, distorted sound. A lot of the elements that made Weezer Weezer, I don't know, it, it wasn't necessarily going to work. And I just can't imagine seeing them live in 1990-whatever and going, that's the band. I used to think that way, too, that record labels were in the business of artists and repertoire development, A&R. I don't think they are. They, they were in the 60s. You know, Motown was interested in trying to develop talent. That's not what it was about by the 90s. It was about if you had a following, they didn't care what your music sounded like. If you had a following and you could fill a venue with 3,000 people, they were going to sign you. They were going to give you a little budget, $500,000 to go into the studio, and they weren't going to look over your shoulder. They were just, it, it was going to be trial and error. If, if it worked out, great. If it didn't, so long, we're never recording with you again. Well, you seem to be describing more how I would think it'd be today. I mean, if, yeah, if you had 3,000 fans showing up for, for a gig, you would get the attention from a label. They'd help you with touring and all these things. I think back then, I, I doubt Weezer could draw 3,000 before they got signed. Well, maybe not 3,000, but what if only 300? I'd still sign that band. Only because the budgets were there in the 90s. And if it doesn't work out, whatever, now that would never happen. I think we could just conclude that they were not in the A&R development. So in other words, they were not helping Weezer to come up with the sound. I think that they gave Weezer some money, however much money that was, mm -hmm. and they said, figure it out. The reason why we think that the uh, record company looks over their shoulder is because of stories like where Nirvana, who is an established act on In Utero, had to worry about the record company not putting out their album because they didn't like the production choices made. Now, that is more a case, not of the record company saying, we have ultimate say-so. It's more the record company saying, guys, you're going to screw up a good thing. You have momentum. 
we are here to make sure that you and us make as much money as possible. Think about your career before you decide to take these unorthodox moves. Because if you listen to In Utero, it's particularly disheveled performances. Yeah. Which Kurt Cobain wanted. He wanted that, yeah. But the, the, again, just to take it back to your initial question, is the recording studio being micromanaged by the record company? No. They don't have the time. That's not my point. My point was more like the decision to sign them still has to be based on some kind of commercial songwriting ability. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder if the record company said, oh, this sweater song, hey, who knows? It might be a one-off novelty and then, yeah. you know, because you don't know also when songs were written, like, let's say they got signed and Buddy Holly didn't exist yet and Say It Ain't So didn't exist yet. And they're sure. writing them during the, you know, the lead up to the studio sessions. I just, I'd love to know the um, history. Yeah, the history. So going back to Buddy Holly, on the melody notes, Rivers Cuomo, who's a composer, is using six, flat six, sevenths, major sevenths, ninths. All across the album, specifically on Buddy Holly, he's using those particular notes, such as when he says, your tongue is twisted, your eyes are slit. That's a ninth. Anytime you find a composer using ninths or sevenths or six or flat six in combinations, it's going to sound novel. So Rivers Cuomo throughout the Blue Album sings melodies and plays notes on his guitar or with his solos that reference these notes because he got it. There's a certain amount of, I've never heard this before, just because he's using those notes, which are unorthodox. Production is standard fare, grunge guitar. What's a little bit novel about this particular performance is that part of what they made their brand, at least on the first album, is they introduce falsettos, which again, as we discussed earlier, gives them that kind of slacker feel where they're not afraid to be self-deprecating and to sing like, and that's for all time. <laughs> they're not afraid to make these silly gaffes. I'm going to throw out a friend reference. They're a Chris Cavanaugh band, you know? Yes. It's like goofy. The, the perfect time period for people that were 13 years old when that came out or 14 that were of that aesthetic. They're dubbing synthesizers on the guitar for the intro after the chorus into the second verse in the build-up section with the and that's for all, all time they're dubbing more synthesizer there the point i'm making here is that rivers and weezer were not afraid to sort of use these slapstick in their music compositions now they also weren't afraid to get ultra serious like a say it ain't so or a song like Only in Dreams. So that was kind of the flair of Weezer. And of course, the songs were well composed, pre-chorus, middle eights. During this particular time in music, or any time after the 60s, you don't particularly see a lot of strict adherence to verse, pre-chorus, chorus. They're also throwing in the odd measures, throwing bars of five on songs like Holiday, which I'll get into in a minute. The point is, is they were composers of the grunge era. And I think that they were downstream from Buddy Holly, who invented the four-man band. Buddy Holly was all about playing straight time, not swing time. So again, to take it back to Weezer, that was the choice that Rivers made, was he wanted to make this all downstrokes, which is another way of saying straight time no swing to it. So everything would be dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, not dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Just a few other notable things to mention about Buddy Holly. It's got a buildup in it. 80% of the Blue Album has a buildup in it. Jonas has it. The workers are going home. Yeah. So that's a buildup. No one else has a buildup. Buddy Holly's got the small buildup at the end of the middle eight solo. 
Uh, Undone has the famous buildup. Surfwax has a buildup. Saint Ain't So kind of has a buildup at the end of its solo. Holiday has a buildup. And of course, Only in Dreams has the famous three-minute buildup. The Blue Album has tons of themes going on. Uh, let's talk about some of them. Besides the buildup theme, you have the G minor major pull-off. He uses that in the uh, sweater song with that kind of dissonant open B string. So he's using it in the sweater song. It also has the same thing in Say It Ain't So. At the beginning, that little guitar riff that he's playing, pulling off from a major to a minor. Only in Dreams also has a dissonant in the guitar. He's not doing a major to minor, but he's doing a six to a flat six, which is the same thing that a major to minor is. He's basically going from the major to the minor scale on the sixth note instead of the third note. They got a falsetto theme. They also, unlike most garage bands during this period, they use 6-8 waltz time, or just think of it as 3-4, same thing. My name is Jonas is in a 3-4 pattern. My name is Jonas, triple it, triple it, triple it. Or holiday, let's go away, triple it, triple it, triple it. So unlike other bands of this era, Rivers Cuomo, on 20% of the songs, uses a waltz, whereas no other grunge artists were using waltz. On Only in Dreams, they use root note tricks. On the bass, the chords are G, C, A, D. But instead, Matt Sharp is playing the thirds. He's playing the B instead of the G, and he's playing the E instead of the C. And that gives that song a particular feel to make it a little bit more downcast because he's using the thirds as the bass notes. Comes back to the roots when they hit the chords A and D. Now, there's so much more depth I could go into. I will probably save for another episode and I'll just reference back to the Weezer album. But I wanted to go into how many measures that they're using on the verses, on the pre-choruses, and on the choruses. And not just how many measures, there's different ways to measure time. So this is to go into some of the time hacking elements. I came up with a terminology to help sort all of this out. Whatever you're singing, that's a particular segment. Whatever chord you're playing, that's a particular segment. Whenever you're choosing to rhyme, that's a particular segment. And of course, the verse which is made up of the vocal lines and the chord lines and the rhyming sections, that's a phrase. I started going through a number of different songs to figure out if there were common themes or common patterns, whether one artist likes to rhyme every second line or every fourth line or every eighth line or whatever it might be, or how long artists tend to like to have their chord patterns go. Is it one bar, two bars, four bars, so on and so forth. And I came up with some pretty good research, but I'm not going to be able to get into all of that on this episode uh, what I do just want to go into is that when you start to consider how time actually affects the feel of the song, you start to think about the psychology of it. It's interesting to note that we have two legs. And when you walk, you're basically walking in 4-4 four, four timing. You're not walking in 3-4 timing. You're not going 1-2-3, Let's call the gallop. <laughs> right. You're going 1-2-1-2. One, two, one, two. It's basically 4-4 four, four timing. Also, when you use a saw or when you think about oil being pumped, any action that up, down, back, forth, everything tends to kind of happen in this life. The physics tend to happen in 4-4 four, four timing, mm -hmm. which is why I think it's interesting to note when you see somebody using waltz timing, which is one, two, three, one, two, three, they ultimately have to convert that into 2-4 timing. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So if you're not thinking about the triplet notes, you're really just hearing one, two, three, four. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. 
this is called a waltz or six, eight timing or, or three, four, whatever you want to call it. 1956, the first song to utilize a waltz in pop music is Willie John's Need Your Love So Bad. I need your love so bad. Beautiful. It's on Wonder Boys soundtrack. Did I do a good version there? I need your love so bad. I I recognize what you were doing, yeah. Well, that that's 1956, and it's done in a waltz pattern. You have to go two more years before somebody else comes out with it. Just like I explained in my last episode with the chorus, once the modern chorus was invented by the Beatles, everybody started doing it. Same thing with pop waltz. By 1958, it becomes commonplace. In fact, it becomes the go-to time signature for all of the downcast love songs, moody music, such as Whoa, Donna, Whoa, Donna, Richie Valens, or 16 Candles, that's a waltz, or a Sea of Love, Come With Me, My Love to the Sea, the Sea of Love. Robert Plant did a famous remake of it, but Sea of Love came out in 1959. That's in a waltz. Put your head on my shoulder. That's a waltz. Since I don't have you. Again, Guns and Roses did a famous remake of it, but Since I Don't Have You came out in 1959. It's done in a waltz. And Sleepwalk, 1959, the one we were talking about earlier, the little uh, instrumental, that's done in a waltz. To go back to what I was talking about with Sleepwalk, how I think it was influenced, it might have been written a year and a half before, but I do believe it was influenced by Buddy Holly's death found Radio Airplay because it was a kind of a creepy little uh, moody song, and they put it into a waltz format. Here's the thing about waltz. You can make any song into a waltz, and you can make any waltz, just about any waltz, into 4-4, actual 4-4 timing. The only thing that tends to change is what the instruments are doing. It's not what the vocal melody is doing, unless you're singing in a triplet pattern, but most of the time they're not. They're just making a guitar arpeggio in the background be the triplet. To take it back to our John Lennon versus Paul McCartney episode where I was talking about how um, Happy Christmas, John Lennon's song, John Lennon, one of the best composers of all time, when he does a waltz, he sings in a waltz as well. He's still having to utilize the drums in a 2-4 backbeat pattern, but if you think about how he's singing, so this is Christmas. What have you done? He's singing along with the triplet, triplet, triplet. Point I'm making here is that John Lennon, as a, as a great composer, when he used a waltz, he also sang in a waltz, which is not what most people do. When they decide to do a waltz, they just convert a 4-4 song into a waltz by adding an arpeggiated guitar, not by actually creating a melody that sings in a 6-8 pattern. Okay. All of that to say time is intrinsic in music, obviously. It's time and beat. Beat is like your heartbeat. Time, it marks the passage. That's what time is. There are different ways to sing. So when you're singing, you can sing really quickly or you can sing really slow, such as us and them. Us, 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 us. And them, them, them. (laughs) Pink Floyd song, right? That's an exaggerated example of how you can stretch out the pacing of your singing. Of course, you can bring the singing in so that it's particularly uh, jumbled together, like rap or any other uh, songs out there where you're singing really quickly. The, The point I'm making is that time operates on multiple levels inside of a song. You have how fast the chords are changing, how fast the lyrics are changing, how fast the drum beat is changing, and how fast the accompanying instruments are changing. And when you really begin to deconstruct songs with that methodology, 
it's kind of cool what patterns begin to emerge. And again, I'll probably bring this up on the next episode because we could do this with any kind of songs and every song has a pattern to it. And every artist tends to utilize the same patterns over and over. They intrinsically fall into a specific type of time signature patterns that they like to use over and over. I'm going to end it there because otherwise this episode is going to go on and on and on. Anything else you wanted to say to these songs? I was wondering, I, I don't think there's an answer to this, but there needs to be a word for when you sing a word not in the way that you would say it. Oh, violent. You don't say violent. You know, you just don't do that. Right. The fact that when a songwriter chooses to fill out the Eddie Vedder, the shades go down in Sid her head. In Sid? Yeah, he doesn't say inside her head. He says the shades go down in Sid her head. Really? But even that, the syllables are right. I think the answer to your question. Rivers had to do it that way to make it feel right. Uh, he does the same thing in Sadie. So this word is a one day. He's just having to make it work. I don't think he's intentionally doing it. Whereas Eddie Vedder did intentionally do it as a lark to basically go, whatever. I, I mispronunciated it. Sue me. Right. It's just an attitude. If I have three syllables to fill here and violent is two. You know, it just seems like you wouldn't have even thought of that word as you were writing the song, unless you had the lyrics written out before, which usually a songwriter of this kind doesn't do. Yeah. I don't know if there's a word for it. I guess it's just phrasing. So I mentioned that Beatles are downstream as well as everything's downstream from Buddy Holly Mm because he he was the first, uh, just like everything's downstream from Elvis. But downstream from Weezer, uh, Strokes... And not just because they only play downstrokes, but because they borrowed some of that slacker ethos. They brought it back in 2001, what was popular in the early 90s. And little lines like in that song last night where he says, in spaceships, they won't understand. That kind of throwaway lines, Weezer, I would say, didn't invent it. Because I think there are a lot of other groups like Flaming Lips who were doing funny lyrics and whatever. But Weezer, I think, found the right balance between being ultra serious as well as funny. They weren't afraid to kind of straddle those two spheres. And I don't think Strokes were afraid to straddle the two spheres either. Julian Casablanca's love getting really mean in one song and really sweet in the next song. I've always loved the spaceships line. It's yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it's bad. Yeah. I'm just saying it's a parlor trick. He didn't have to throw in a joke, but he did. It's the same thing we did with our uh, Just to Know song where I said, get me some Funyuns and Coke in a very serious song. The fact that we had a band in the 90s, and if you look at our promo photos, the photos we took as a band that were meant to be whatever, but we're standing there in our stupid pants and t-shirts and slightly, you know, little... Just like Weezer. Yeah, it took me looking back on it 20 years later and go... Oh, that's completely Weezer aesthetic. And I certainly wasn't trying to do anything. When you're kind of normcore and it's like, I'm not trying to look like anything, you end up looking like Weezer. Well, keep in mind, no, you're absolutely right. But as far as the album cover is concerned, you might not have known, but we specifically did the album cover to look like the Weezer Blue album. But instead, we drew it out on notebook paper to take it one level deeper in terms of trying to deconstruct a simp- the simplistic nature of a four-man band. Wait, 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 wait. I-, <laughs> I don't think that that was anything of an intentional thought. I mean, I think it just was, hey, 
John drew some pictures on his notebook. Those look fine. Let's do that. Yeah, John did draw the pictures. And when I saw the pictures, I immediately earmarked it for being the album cover because I thought that is perfect for making into the blue album in a deconstructed manner. (laughs) All right. You were not aware I was operating on many levels at that time. No, no. But it did strike me when I saw some old photographs, you know, a few months ago of us like lined up against the wall. And I go, that looks, I mean, real photographs, not the drawings. I said, that looks exactly like the Weezer blue album cover. Well, that was just a matter of convenience. That's what we looked like, though. We kind of had a Weezer uh, sound as well. Again, Weezer, to sum it up, they brought pre-choruses and middle eights. They were being done before, but they made it part of their brand. You did not see that throughout grunge music. I mean, every once in a while, a band had a pre-chorus or a middle eight, but not consistently like Weezer. What makes Rivers Cuomo a great composer is that he's relying on all the tools in the songwriter shed from utilizing the sixth, sevenths, ninths, the majors to minors, the pre-choruses, the middle eights the buildups. He's pretty much drawing on every trick possible. Plus he's making great sounding hooks and he's doing lots of contrast in terms of, you know, happy to sad to mad to happy. He's not afraid to go all around the spectrum inside one song. When this album came out, a lot of people who I knew were listening to this album. Their only complaint about the album was that it was so short that you kind of had to play it three times in a row. That's a good problem. It was 10 songs and it was like 30 minutes And this is back when people were still buying tapes. It was just kind of annoying because it really felt like one long song because it was such a well-constructed album. One other thing I wanted to mention is that the first four songs of this album are the only four songs that have pre-choruses. I don't know why they structured it that way, if it was intentional or not, but only the first four songs have pre-choruses. And then once you get to Undone, which is song five and onward, they don't have pre-choruses. We'll leave it there. And the next episode, I'm still debating on what songs to put together. I know the theme and I know the bands I want to use, kind of, sort of. It's going to be a Motown band versus Beastie Boys. But I want to show how rap was born in Motown. It was born way before 1979 Funk Master. I mean, that was the that was when that was invented. However, Beastie Boys, which I consider to be one of the greatest rap groups of all time, they're the Beatles of rap. I think that they draw more on Motown than they do on Funk Master. Sugar pie, honey pie. That's a good one. That's 64. I might be able to get before that. Is that the temptation? That's four tops. I think you can go back to like the first hit, Money, That's What I Want. That's a bit of a hip hop rap song. The best things in life are free. But I'll prove it in the next episode. I thought that was a pre-Motown song. Well, it's by Gordy. Oh. So it's still a Motown song because Gordy wrote it. Okay. But we'll get to that in a month. And hopefully I don't get COVID sometime between now and the next episode. Mm. But we'll find out. Wait, listeners, if I'm not around in a month, I got COVID. <laughs> Hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> and z <Z-Pack. laughs> Well, thanks for listening. Leave us some comments, and uh, we'll see you next time.